Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 10th of February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and our very own Alex Thompson reporting Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Well, uh, this was pushed out, well, first of all, by Laura Kunzberg on Twitter this morning. Uh, spin back 12 months, two messages from government today that have been quite simply unimaginable. Threat of 10 years in jail if you don't tell authorities truth about where you've been. And the Transport Secretary suggesting no one should think about holidays. So what's that about? Uh, the government has said that really there needs to be prison sentences for anybody coming from outside the UK into the UK. And if they've come from what's considered a, a risky COVID hotspot, they don't admit it. They could go to prison if it's subsequently discovered. Uh, and, uh, and we've been firmly told to be no holidays this summer. Forget it. Uh, just forget it. Um, so uh, Nick Bowles, MP, however, said the government needs to be very careful. Police uh, people support the current restrictions because the vaccines offer hope of a return to normality after everyone over 50 and everyone vulnerable of working or working in health and social care has been offered a vaccine. Freedom must be restored. I think uh, what Nick Bowles is really uh, pushing there is this idea that people that are, shall we call them vaccine hesitant, people that aren't going to be uh, taking the vaccine are going to be blamed for the fact that uh, the government is no intention of lifting uh, this lockdown. Um, and uh, well, there's going to be quite a media drive along those lines, I think, over the coming weeks and months. I think it's going to be a very strong one. But of course, this is the same Nick Bowles that a few years ago warned us that the Conservative government intended to use what it called creative destruction in order to completely restructure the whole of uh, government and society. And that's what we see happening at the moment. So I'm interested that Mr. Nick Bowles should be making these comments. Yeah, well, uh, the BBC had Jonathan Van Tam this morning answering uh, viewers questions. It was very exciting. Uh, and uh, the, he was asked questions, will, like, will teachers be vaccinated? And he said, well, only after everybody else, unless they're already in a, uh, on, a, on one of the lists for being uh, at risk. Uh, but he was asked uh, about catching uh, coronavirus, catching COVID uh, after taking the vaccine. Um, and he said that the vaccines are never 100% effective, uh, although your infection is, un is unfortunate because the lady that asked the question had in fact uh, got ended up with a positive COVID test uh, after she'd received the uh, injection. Uh, although your infection is unfortunate, many, many more people will not have become infected as a result of the jab. Well, is that true? We're going to come on to that in a second with respect to the statistics over care homes. Before we do that, just want to make a correction for uh, Monday's programme, uh, because Brian put uh, this graphic up on the left here. Uh, from the Office for National Statistics showing the all-cause mortality rates uh, for the last lot of years uh, from 1990 until 2020. But unfortunately, that was a slightly older uh, spreadsheet that was taken from. And so that figure of 561,529 at the bottom uh, wasn't the final tally. Uh, that spreadsheet was updated finally on the 12th of January. They're still saying that the, the number of uh, deaths is provisional. Uh, but nonetheless, the figure for 2020 is 608,002. So just wanted to uh, highlight that. But the key point here, of course, is that those figures, uh, the rest of those figures, absolutely correct. But, the, but uh, those figures don't take into account population changes. Uh, and when you do look at that particular uh, situation, this is what you find. 
that despite the headlines over the last couple of weeks um, about uh, 2020 being the worst year since the Second World War, it's nothing close to being the worst, worst year since the Second World War. It's the ninth worst year since, since the turn of the century uh, and significantly better than we were seeing in terms of age standardized mortality. So that's deaths per 100,000 people in the population uh, since the 1970s. So uh, really that is the important graph that we've got to uh, keep reminding ourselves of. Uh, and the, uh, the Office for National Statistics actually publishes this information back to 1938. But anyway, what is the latest situation uh, with respect to excess mortality uh, for the country at the moment? Well, this is the graph since the beginning of the so-called pandemic, and that's how it's looking. Uh, so let's put on the first lockdown, first of all, uh, which then generated what we describe as lockdown deaths. Uh, now, some people still asking why we do this. And of course, if you didn't hear the explanation back in April and May last uh, last year, you won't know. But uh, basically, this is on the basis of, of people that had uh, comorbidities or people that uh, weren't getting medical treatment or people that were being taken out of hospital with indeterminate uh, COVID status and being sent into care homes and then uh, having blanket DNRs put on them. Uh, but in whatever the case, most of those deaths from the first peak uh, were as a result of failures by the system, by the National Health Service. But here we are, uh, let's put a line on for when vaccination began. Uh, and we can now create a new uh, block of excess mortality since then. Now, the big dip there, of course, is Christmas and New Year. Uh, so you've got to take, into that, take that into account that the numbers on the right-hand side of that uh, will include people that died over that period. Uh, but I think we're going to call this uh, vaccine deaths now um, because it's increasingly clear that this is the case. Now, we've shown this graphic uh, before a couple of times, but let's look at it again because if we put the uh, red dotted line on there, which is when the first vaccines were delivered for over 80s, and this is applying to other uh, age groups as well, but for over 80s, uh, the rate of uh, death has increased significantly. It was basically flat in the weeks running up to the vaccination period, and now it's spiking. Uh, now, where is the excess mortality actually taking place? Well, this is the latest uh, ONS data for week four, four. This is up to the 29th of January, 2021. Uh, quite a bit of excess mortality taking place in hospitals. Care homes now, we're starting to see significant excess mortality, but still quite a lot of excess mortality in people's homes. Um, so they're not getting the care that they need. Uh, in other locations, it's pretty much on the five-year average. So, Brian, I don't know what you th think of that. I've labeled the, the latest, uh, the pink box on, on the graph, uh, vaccine deaths as opposed to lockdown deaths. But actually, in reality, it's a mixture of both of those things. Um, there's very little uh, that can be absolutely definitively confirmed as being COVID because if people have ended up with uh, symptoms similar to COVID having had a vaccine, then that wasn't COVID that did that, particularly yeah. in a care home, as we've uh, highlighted over the last couple of days, that had no infection through the whole thing, had very good uh, procedures in place. And we've got more people um, coming to us with more information about those, uh, those increases inside the care home. So uh, this is not just a report from us professionals out on the ground caring for elderly people are reporting to us that that is the uh, state of affairs. My analysis of it is that there is no way that the government could not understand 
that its policies are killing off tens of thousands of elderly people. And I'll use the I word, I believe this is a deliberate cull of the elderly. It's planned, it's deliberate, and it's just a question that uh, the wider public have got to understand how malicious uh, the present UK government is. But can this be accidental? Can do the experts not see these increases? Of course they see them, Mike. Uh, well, and so do the media, but they're not asking any questions. So let's just run through some of the headlines. Breaking news, weekly COVID care home deaths approach 2000 mark. Uh, the Sun saying nine care home residents dead, 69 infected in mass COVID outbreak six days after getting vaccine. Uh, COVID related deaths in care homes in England jumped by 46%, says The Guardian. Uh, 10 new care home deaths announced on, in the, on the Isle of Wight, says the Isle of Wight County Press. Uh, Andover advertiser deaths in Andover nursing home following COVID outbreak. Uh, deaths in Tregenna House care home following COVID outbreak. Devastating loss, loss of life in care homes as second wave death toll uh, grows. Uh, from Wales Online and Yorkshire Live, care home COVID deaths in Yorkshire past 100 for three weeks straight. And we just got headline after headline after headline uh, of care home deaths following vaccination and nobody's asking any serious questions about uh, whether the, the, those situations are linked, uh, particularly in the situation that we've got so many care homes that did very well uh, over the entire period and didn't have any problems. Any cases at all. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, what is, uh, what is the Alzheimer's Society saying about this? Of course, they have uh, a big interest in people in care homes. Uh, this is Fiona Carragher from the Alzheimer's Society saying these latest figures show the highest proportion of deaths in care homes from COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Over 26,000 people have now died in care homes, many who will have had dementia. Uh, we can start getting numb to these kinds of numbers. Uh, this tragedy needs to stop now. We need to urgently vaccinate care home staff and offer second vaccines to, to help uh, to people living in care homes. So no questions from the Alzheimer's Society about the coincidence of vaccination and then well, mass outbreaks. It's, it's incredible that people just aren't paying attention. They're not paying attention, but they're not able to think anymore. All this uh, lady Fiona is doing is simply following the mantra which the government is pushing out. She's not doing any research herself. She's not looking at the figures. She's not using a organisation to find out what's happening on the ground. It's simply repeat the mantra. Uh, this is the dangerous bit, Mike. And before I ask uh, Vanessa and Alex for comment, I just want to remind everybody of this that we showed on Monday's programme. Uh, this is uh, Public Health Matters on the government uh, uh, website. What do we know about the new COVID-19 variants? And they make the point that there's a UK variant, uh, there's a South African variant, and there's a Brazilian variant. Uh, and the point I was making on Monday uh, was that if you look at this AstraZeneca press release, uh, which is titled uh, COVID-19 vaccine, AstraZeneca confirms 100% protection against severe disease, hospitalization and death in the primary analysis of phase three trials. Uh, what do they say? The primary analysis for efficacy was based on 17,177 participants, accruing 332 symptomatic cases from phase three UK, Brazil and South Africa trials led by Oxford University and AstraZeneca. And my question, my question, Alex, if I can come to you first is, uh, we said this on, on Monday, this coincidence seems more than a coincidence. Nobody is asking why the three variants come from the three areas where the AstraZeneca uh, trials have been uh, taking place. 
Well, this would be part of the death of logic in society, Mike, which, although I'm in the, the arts rather than the sciences, has always been a concern of mine as I've been endeavouring to teach, especially classical languages where you need syntax at a high level. Even in your own language, if you wish to be a person in public life, you need to know how to read and speak well. And that skill has been in decline for several generations. Uh, I think the likes of Charlotte Thompson, Isa Bitt and John Taylor Gatto have brought out well in their books why this would be so and who benefits. Uh, but it comes to a point when people are no longer able, uh, even in Enlightenment heavy countries like Britain, uh, to tell the difference between sufficient and necessary causation and to spot when a correlation tips over into a suspected cause. Now these things are obviously uh, evidence to those who go on common sense, but the more you learn second and third hand knowledge without having your hands on the real world experience, this will happen. And I notice as regards the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, that most of Britain's immediate neighbours on the continent have now banned it for the over 55s or over 60s or over 70s. I've counted either parliamentary or government statements coming from France, Germany, Italy, Switzerland and Belgium to that extent, not here in the Netherlands yet, uh, but people are rather suspicious of it. I suppose the bellwether country there, within the EU at least, is Hungary because it has Russia's Sputnik vaccine, but is within the EU for statistical quality uh, standard purposes. So if Hungary can be relied upon to produce the most accurate data of countries using the Sputnik vaccine, let's see what the death rate is where that vaccine is being used. Uh, yes. Uh, Vanessa, welcome to the programme. Um, just what are your thoughts on, on what we've, we've uh, mentioned so far? Well, I mean, it's just, I, I think what jumps out at me is how extraordinary it is, as if people are badly affected or even, heaven forbid, die having had the injection, um, the COVID vaccine, of course, then it's dismissed as having nothing to do with the, with the vaccine. Whereas we know if somebody dies of uh, symptoms or, or they have symptoms of uh, COVID-19, when they effectively pass away from a previous or pre-existing illness, then it's immediately attributed to the COVID-19. So, you know, we're seeing such um, really criminal duplicity going on, both uh, in the official statements about the effects of the vaccine. I saw a report the other day saying that one in three people were affected adversely by um, the, the vaccine injection. Um, and yet governments, institutions, um, health institutions that are governing the narrative on COVID are simply not addressing it and are therefore willfully putting the public at risk. Uh, indeed. Wilfing, Wilf, sorry, they know and they're fully culpable and it is criminal. I totally agree with that, Vanessa. Um, but, uh, well, the question is, was it released uh, in order to try to take some of the edge off the ONS statistics? But here's the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee. Uh, Government procurement and supply of personal protect, protective equipment. Uh, their report from the 42nd report of session 2019 to 21. Uh, and what are they saying in this? Some 25,000 patients in care homes uh, were dis discharged to care homes from hospitals. Uh, some without being tested for COVID-19 after it became clear, uh, even after it became clear that people could transmit the virus without having symptoms. This contributed significantly to the deaths in care homes during the first wave. Uh, but really the majority of this, of the focus of this report was that care homes didn't have uh, sufficient PPE, uh, personal protection equipment. Uh, and uh, that was really what the headlines in the mainstream press were focusing on. Uh, it was a bit diversionary. 
And I think that's the key quote there, Brian, that, uh, uh, you know, it was discharged from hospitals with indeterminate status that did quite a lot of the damage. Uh, and the press soon afterwards reported that massive increase in deaths and talked about this, and then that all disappeared from the, uh, from the media, um, as well, usual. Yes. Well, here is uh, Alexandre de uh, Juniac, who uh, is chair of the International Air Transport Association. Now, the government uh, has said that there are no plans for immunity passports for coronavirus. Uh, a spokesman is quoted in, widely in the press from number 10 saying there's still no current plans to roll out a vaccine passport going on holiday is currently illegal. So this has been on mainstream news and all the press, this statement going on holiday is currently illegal. Um, so, uh, but no current plans, but that doesn't mean anything, does it? That's absolutely meaningless. Well, what is uh, Alexandre de Juniac saying? Uh, well, he was speaking to the BBC uh, to one of their podcasts and he said, uh, we should not anticipate, uh, but the UK authorities are among those with whom we have the closest link uh, on immunity pass passports. So he is absolutely uh, stating that they and the UK government are in lockstep with re respect to this. Uh, and so any statements from the, number 10 Downing Street that there's no plans uh, is nonsense because they're making plans. Um, they may not be finalized, but they are in progress. So what did, uh, so that, that he was speaking to uh, the uh, newscast podcast, uh, but Grant Shapps was on the Radio 4 Today program this morning. He's the transport secretary, of course. He was saying that I would imagine in the future there'll be an international system where countries will want to know that you've been potentially vaccinated or potentially had tests before taken before flying. I'm not clear what that means. How can you be, why would they want to know that you've been potentially vaccinated or potentially well, had a test? Uh, he, he doesn't want to tell the truth. Uh, he's, he's trying to spin the truth. And so he's coming out with words which don't make sense, Mike. The man's lying, in my opinion. That's yeah. what it shows. Okay. And he went on to say, I think the confusion comes when people talk about domestic passports, which I think is not on the cards. So he's not, it's not a definitive, definitive denial either. It's, he just thinks it's not on the cards. But then he also thinks that potential immunity pa passports or something or potential vaccination is something that people want to know about. So I'm not clear that he really knows what he thinks. Um, so where does that take us then? Uh, well, I couldn't resist this because for me, this article tells us where this is all going. It's based on Jerusalem and what the uh, mayor of Jerusalem has said recently regarding unvaccinated Arabs. Um, but he's stopping them going into the mosques. But I just read this and I thought, yes, this man is telling us exactly what's going to happen. Muslim residents of East Jerusalem won't be allowed to visit mosques if they refuse to join Israel's vaccination drive. The city's mayor has warned community leaders. The people in the Muslim part of the city were indifferent to being vaccinated against coronavirus and needed, quote, extra persuasion <laughs> to get the shots. And then uh, this is the bit that caught See, when you're talking about Israel, though, the word shot could have multiple meanings. It's a bit difficult. I, I don't think there's any doubt in the meaning here because the, this is to do with threats, intimidation and brutality. This is the statement. Remember what I tell you, friends, whoever does not get vaccinated won't be able to return to normal routine. And I think that mayor is telling the truth. He is showing how the system is going to work. And the fact that this is being said in Jerusalem is simply indicative that this is what's going to be said 
uh, here in the UK and the West. So this is a pretty brutal statement. Uh, Vanessa, um, what's happening in, in Syria and, and Lebanon with regard to uh, vaccines? It, are they taking this, this strong position? Um, it, it, well, as far as I'm aware, I think the earliest that any vaccine is going to hit the ground here in Syria is April. I have no idea what kind of vaccination programme they have lined up. Um, but there's, in, in all honesty, I've said this before, there is very little interest in the COVID narrative generally here in Syria. People have a lot more important things to worry about, basically. Um, but I think, as far as I know, that I, and I think they're looking at, um, I think China actually is providing something like 150,000 vaccines, but I'm not really sure. I mean, that's a drop in the ocean of an 18 million population. So it's it's not it's not the top news story by any means, uh, and we'll be coming on no. to a bit more in a second. Uh, now, if you uh, like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, and we'd be very pleased if you would join us there, join the community there, and uh, also please do share um, our material. It's uh, on various platforms and on the website as well. And we just say, well, we'll ask the question: Are we having an effect with your help? We believe we are. Uh, so the whistleblower section that went out from Monday's news, that's now up at 32,000 views. And as a result of that segment, more people have contacted us from within the care system. So more um, facts and truth to come to the surface. So we're going to say, if you haven't uh, heard that clip, please listen to it and share it with other people and warn what is happening and help protect elderly people amongst others. Uh, we'd also want to say a very big thank you to Andrew and Caroline for your support and a very generous donation. So that one's uh, very simple, but uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, uh, OK, Vanessa, uh, you caused a bit of trouble on Twitter uh, a week or so ago uh, with this uh, tweet. Uh, Britain is it was a reply to uh, uh, to um, sorry, you're going to have to remind me. <laughs> it's a, pl a reply to, to, to Peter, Peter Hitchens, of course. Yes, right enough. Okay, so and it <laughs> says Britain was not drawn into a Syrian civil war. It effectively fomented and planned civil unrest to overthrow a non-compliant government. See Roland Duma, uh, 2013. Uh, also, BBC Media Action. Juliet Harkin was identified suitable opposition in 2004. Uh, now that, uh, just to remind everybody, you have uh, linked to an article on the uh, UK column website, BBC Fake News Reality Check. Uh, but this was the key quote that Juliet Harkin was quoted in that article as having said. Uh, she said, we, BBC Media Action, worked in 2004 with individuals, with individuals within the Syrian ministry who wanted to change and tried to get them to be drivers of that and tried to get them to be drivers of that. Uh, all media development work that has been done in Syria has, in my opinion, been predicated upon this idea that there could be change from within. Uh, you have an authoritarian regime and you find who the reformers are within that and you work with them. Um, now, this, uh, your tweet, your reply to Peter Hitchens got a response from Juliet Harkin uh, and she said, Vanessa, kindly read the original report and desist from using my name like this in your PowerPoint presentations. Uh, you've completely misunderstood the report and context. Um, now, I'm going to uh, show some quotes from the report in a, in a second, Vanessa. But first of all, uh, in your view, 
Uh, have you completely misunderstood the report and the context? <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I had a discussion with Peter Ford, who was British ambassador uh, at the time. He was there 2003 to 2006. So effectively, he was British ambassador in Damascus when Juliet Hawkin was also in Damascus working for BBC Media Action. Now, uh, Juliet Harkin, in our very long Twitter conversation, cited Peter and informed me that she believed that he had approved her presence in Damascus. Now, when I spoke to Peter, he had no recollection of Harkin. Um, but what is interesting is, is the context of the time she was in Damascus. In 2004 was a point when Tony Blair uh, and Bush were trying to develop the different relationship with Syria post-invasion uh, of Iraq, the second invasion of Iraq. And if you look at the emails between Bush and Blair, uh, which can be found in the Chilcot report, you can see Blair is suggesting instead of going immediately for military intervention or proxy military intervention in Syria, we should perhaps try to foster a different relationship. So I actually floated the idea to Harkin on Twitter that, well, OK, perhaps you went there with the intention of um, identifying opposition, of influencing media, with a view to putting forward the reforms that the British government wanted to see in Syria impl uh, implemented by Assad at the time they were courting him. But at the same time, the information that you gathered is a very good scouting opportunity to if Plan A failed, i.e. if Assad, as, we, as history tells us, was not compliant with the US-UK agenda in the region, then you can move to Plan B and the information that you've collated on the opposition, on the media that can be used to influence public opinion both in the region and in the West, um, can be very useful to the British government, which we know has been heavily invested in um, PR and media for the armed groups that they have uh, financed, supported and armed alongside the US coalition to overthrow the Syrian government. Um, OK, that's pretty clear. But <laughs> let, let's uh, let's go back to the let's look at the report. Then this was the report that that quote came from. It's called uh, Country Case mm. Study Syria, support to media where media freedoms and rights are constrained. Uh, it's from BBC Media Action. Uh, so let's just have a look at a couple of short quotes from this. In 2004, BBC Media Action launched a three-year, £1.5 million uh, Arab media dialogue programme across se seven Middle East countries. In Syria, BBC Media Action conducted journalism skills, business and management training and mentoring for selected journalists, editors and managers, working in close partnership with both state and private media outlets. Now, the first thing I've got to say here, Vanessa, is I don't really understand uh, Juliette Harkin's position um, because, you know, what what did she think that she was doing? Why would the BBC want to go and provide these skills training for, for Syrian uh, journalists, particularly since BBC Media Action is funded by the Foreign Commonwealth Office, unless it's an extension of British soft power? Uh, absolutely. Now, 
you know, if we want to be generous, we could say that Juliet Harkin personally was not aware that she was being instrumentalised by BBC, BBC Media Action in order to provide the information that they needed for Plan B, which was the destabilisation of Syria via media, via um, proxy militants, etc. But when we go on to look at Juliet Harkin's um, career path... Right, well, hold on, because that, we'll, do that, we'll do that in yeah. a second. Just don't, don't preempt that. We'll, we'll come on to that in a second. Okay, so... So uh, let's, let's look at the, the, the next short quote. The private online newspaper Syria News was identified as a promising startup and in 2006 its managers were trained on suitable, uh, sustainable business models uh, for online news. Seven of its staff attended BBC run workshops and training for trainers and mentoring skills before Syria News set up its own training operation for young graduates. So they're, they're very careful about who they're choosing to work with. Uh, and it goes on to say, Harkin's interviews with Syrian journalists show uh, that they are no longer a homogenous group uh, sharing a unified view of their role in society. She says there is a dual media system, the private and the state sectors. Journalists in the private sector see those working in the public sector as civil servants, not journalists. And I thought that was pretty key because um, already you're starting to see a split has developed between, between journalists. Was that mm. split a natural split or was that split encouraged? by the operation that was going on at the time. I don't know that we can answer that, but nonetheless, uh, it goes on to say, Media Action did not work with a local partner on blogging training, so they were training bloggers, and bloggers played a very pivotal role in what then became the war, uh, as this could have alienated and excluded parts of the blogging community. Instead, the BBC collaborated with an informal network of bloggers from across, across the country and recruited mentors for the distance learning system uh, who were trained in workshops at London and Damascus. And again, what did she think? Why would the BBC be interested in doing this other than to promote uh, British foreign policy? Yeah, and I think what's really interesting, I think Syria News, from, from the research I did, actually later relocated to Turkey. And another one of the um, media cells that she collaborated with was then later funded um, by Riyadh, of course, Saudi Arabia, one of the backers of the terrorist groups, particularly ISIS inside Syria. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's very hard not to come to the conclusion that Harkin, whether it was wittingly or unwittingly, uh, she was there to identify the potential bloggers, the potential uh, media outlets, the potential private media companies that would be sympathetic um, to an opposition to the Syrian government. And as we later see that, that, that some of those media outlets with whom she was working relocated, they left Syria. So they were clearly um, on the side of the armed uprising against the Syrian government. And of course, Harkin's own position in her writing, in her papers, has maintained the authoritarian regime, um, the, the various narratives that have enabled the humanitarian war against Syria. Um, and she hasn't altered that. In, she hasn't deviated from that narrative in the 18-plus uh, years, no, how many years is it? 15 years that uh, since she first went to Damascus in 2004. And another interesting point, she was allowed into the country at a time when um, the West was courting 
uh, Assad and the Syrian government and Syria as a whole. But she was refused entry after 2011, which suggests to me that the Syrian government had by then ascertained what her role was and were not intending to allow her back into the country. Yeah. Um, okay, um, Alex, uh, let me bring you in at this point. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on what we've what we've seen so far on this? It uh, brings to mind a couple of the books I have in my library. Uh, one, I forget the title, but it, it, it traces uh, young foreign office uh, staff from three uh, European countries, the French and the Dutch, and uh, I forget which other. Uh, post-war period coming to the State Department and being charmed. And the other is the book uh, by Udo Ulfkotter, U-L-F-K-O-T-T-E. You can find his book in English, I think it's called Prestitutes in the Pay of the CIA, which is um, a, a, a translation of one of his many books uh, in German, or several books in German. Uh, and these outline how people are nobbled at the beginning of their careers. If they're in Britain itself, it is from uh, Oxbridge uh, onwards in many cases to this day. And it's what Vanessa has outlined really, the, the result is people we can work with. And I will not over-egg the claim here, but I have in my eight years at GCHQ heard chatter from Foreign Office and MI6 people in the hottest parts of the world, shall we say, the most interesting ones to British foreign policy, talking about British and local journalists who are more or less in three categories, for us, against us, and indifferent, as it were, uh, neither one way nor the other. And there are ways of cultivating uh, and repressing, as the case may be, the output of these journalists uh, without them actually being on the books of an intelligence agency. Um, okay, so uh, Vanessa, um, you mentioned uh her future or her later career and uh, let's let's have a look at a couple of uh, of her later roles mm. first of all here she was a consultant she then became a consultant in 2011 to 2012 uh, for global communications studies at annenberg school for communications um what do we know about this organization internews oh gosh internews well i mean internews if you look at their ambassadors before I even get onto the donors of Internews. Um, but interestingly, um, if we actually look at her career path, sorry, she started off at um, the Economist Intelligence Unit. So she was heavily involved in researching um, the economic, economic landscape for countries that were being targeted by the British Foreign Office for their financial interests and their um, global agenda. Um, she then uh, spent some time working for the Council for British Research in the Levant, where she set up seminars on Arab revolutions, 2011. And I also have to say, I mean, perhaps Alex can comment on this. She dots around um, from her, her various jobs, spending on average between three to four months at each position. Um, she then was a freelance consultant for Chatham House, based in Egypt, just as the Arab Spring um, was was coming to the fore there. And as you point out, November 2011, she spent four months as a consultant for Internews. And again, in April 2012, she was a proje uh, sorry, project director, um, Arab World for Internews Europe. Now, Internews, when we look at them, I mean, this is uh, an organization geared towards change and influencing change. Um, we have, as their ambassador, Sarah Baxter, 
deputy editor of the Sunday Times, Lord Black of Brentwood, deputy chairman of Telegraph Media Group, Sir Simon Jenkins, journalist and author, Sir Martin Lewis, CBE, journalist, broadcaster, former BBC, and ITN news anchor, chairman of the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service and executive chairman uh, of Your Big Day Limited, whatever that is. Um, if we look at their, their website, we come across, of course, their various global theories of change. This is a huge organization invested in change, invested in influencing change in target nations. Um, and Harkin's um, focus, as always, was, for example, as consultant, she was leading an innovative pilot research study focused on how major broadcasters are using social media content from Syria to cover the Syrian revolt, as she puts it, revolution. Also sampling views from social media users read the coverage of the Syrian revolt. Now, that can be interpreted in hindsight with the recent leak of the UK Foreign Office documents showing that the British government was, was uh, extensively providing PR and media coverage um, to whitewash the armed groups, including those linked to al-Qaeda and even ISIS, that Harkin was basically involved in providing the information that was enabling um, that black op against Syria to... to to be successful, as as we know, really it was. Um, well, look, if we, I just wanted to to put the donors uh, for Internews up because, of course, we got UK Aid <laughs> uh, now part of the Foreign Office. Channel Four uh, was a key one because because, of course, Channel Four uh, produced documentaries. Mm. They've they've used so-called local journalists, uh, and many of these people that they've used have quite possibly been through this type of program because they they have been they're they're quite young. They've been groomed. Uh, and they're they're providing a particular narrative to Channel Four, BBC Media Action, of course, in there, and then other usual suspects like uh, the United Nations, Odemeyer, Facebook, John Hopkins, uh, World Bank, Rockefeller Foundation, and so on. Uh, but uh, let's mm. uh, let's move on with it because uh, then, uh, as you say, uh, she became moved uh, became a research associate at Arab Studies Institute, undertaking research. Mm on Middle East and the media with a focus on Syria, including contributing to the new Syria page uh, on, well, you'll have to tell me what the website is. <laughs> on the Jadalia um, website. Now, Jadalia itself is pretty interesting. I mean, even all of these organizations that she's worked for, and I, I would like Alex to possibly confirm this speculation on my behalf, all of these organizations from Chatham House upwards are connected to British intelligence agencies. Um, and Jadalia, let's have a look at this. I mean, she wrote, she contributed to Jadalia. Uh, Jadalia was very supportive in the 10 years of its existence of uh, the Syrian uprising in inverted commas. Jadalia is partnered by Active Arab Voices, which in turn is partnered by Ayman Asfari, who of course was instrumental in the creation of Syria campaign and the White Helmets. Brian, you'll like this, uh, partnered with Common Purpose. So clearly it has a very strong leaning towards behavioral insight, towards uh, influencing change. Um, the Ford Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Chatham House, UNDP. So in every uh, situation where we find Juliet Hawking, we find this nexus of intelligence-linked um, organizations that have been and are still instrumental 
in uh, the destabilization of, of Syria. Uh, Alex. Yes, I concur with Vanessa, but what might surprise some listeners is that I would say that it is not the intelligence agencies that would have the whip hand in this relationship. I would say that they are instrumentalized by the tax-exempt foundations and the think tanks. If you go up the tree from the Foreign Office to the body which functions as the Foreign Office's think tank, Chatham House, you are moving from public to private. You're moving from civil servants into the world of the oligarchs. The same is true with The Economist, which uh, has long behaved effectively as the uh, house journal for Anglo-American, what might be called neoliberal foreign policy, uh, but above that uh, works as a mouthpiece for the Trilateral Commission, uh, or ultimately Bilderberg, which is, you know, uses the Trilateral Commission as its, as its uh, more you know, day-to-day -day managing board, as it were. So that's, that's the, the flow that I would see whenever I went to Chatham House events uh, and met these, uh, you know, sort of uh, squirreled away persons who were working on parts of the world like the Levant and the former Soviet Union, it would always be the case I would meet someone from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Yes, it is a, a magazine with an intelligence unit, uh, alarm bells should ring, and they would behave as though they were collecting information for private benefactors. I mean, ultimately, this goes back to the, the Rhodes-Milner group. There's so much material we could recommend on this. But before the First World War, in Britain and America, that relationship was already sewn up, that as the, the intelligence agencies in their modern form came into being in the decade before the First World War, they were there to fulfill much longer term agen uh, agendas for, shall we say, blue bloods, mostly European continental and also British industrialist blue bloods. Uh, and the, the, it was the think tanks giving instructions to the intelligence agencies. Just look at the money. I mean, the, the order of magnitude difference in funding between Chatham House and the, the Foreign Office in this regard should tell you something. Yes. Uh, well, look, uh, Alex, the, 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 last, uh, the last job uh, that we want to highlight is, uh, is her most recent role, uh, just for you, because I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Uh, Project Officer, Freedom of Religion and Belief Leadership Network at the Church of England. This is what she's currently doing. Um, I have no idea what that uh, particular body does, the Freedom of Relig uh, Religion and Belief Leadership Network, uh, but maybe you have uh, some knowledge. Um, leadership in this regard is a big buzzword in the C of E, and as Brian would be quick to add, it comes out of the common purpose think tank world, as it were. Um, the key, the giveaway there is freedom of religion or belief. The, the C of E regards itself now as not even perhaps a religious organisation, but a, a national asset. <clears throat> and certainly the government's always regarded it that way. And that, as a set phrase, freedom of religion or belief, that comes out of the post-war European conventions and treaty language. And it's the term that's bandied about by the OSCE, for example, or agencies of the UN. So that, uh, that world or that, that way of thinking has been forward posted into it or backfitted into existing societal structures like the Church of England, which very much does have a historic role standing up for persecuted Christians or at a push persecuted fellow, fellow monotheists, but no historic background in standing up for this nebulous uh, human rights capacity um, or human rights area concept of freedom of religion or belief. Okay, thank you for that. Now, uh, the next uh, thing we want to talk about uh, with Vanessa is is Lebanon, because uh, we haven't. It's not something that occupies uh, much of the uh, news narrative in this country. But I just want to show a couple of the headlines from the last couple of days in various media. So this is the Independent. Six months ago, Beirut blew up. Now Lebanon is on the brink of collapse. 
Uh, we have uh, uh, the Middle East Monitor here, Lebanon Free Patriotic Movement Calls to Review Alliance with Hezbollah. Um, and uh, we have the BBC saying Lebanon's coronavirus lockdown, we can't leave our homes day or night. Um, so Vanessa, first of all, um, it looks like uh, there's, Lebanon is in a position where it, it's, it's breaking up uh, societally, and, but at the same time, a fairly brutal lockdown going on there. Yeah, um, as far as I know, in areas like Tripoli, for example, the lockdown is 24-7. I don't know if that is the same all the way across Lebanon. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly for the last few years, Lebanon has been the target of um, the globalist nations, of course, because it is um, the closest allied to Syria of Syrians' neighbors. And so therefore it was necessary um, to target Lebanon for destabilization in order to, to pull the rug out from under Syria's feet, of course, which effectively it has done. Um, Lebanon was put into economic freefall before um, the corona crisis. Of course, we then had um, the dreadful um, tragedy of the explosion in Beirut port, which also um, the intimation has been that it was because Hezbollah had been storing um, ammunition, weapons, etc. Um, in the port. There has been recent attempts by Martin Chulov at The Guardian, who um, I would suspect has very clear ties to intelligence agencies in the UK, um, to suggest that it was uh, Assad-linked businessmen that were effectively responsible for the blast. Of course, his article has been quite rightly rubbished as the pile of nonsense that it really was. There was absolutely zero evidence in it. What evidence that was there was, was discredited immediately. So, you know, this was a very lame attempt to uh, attribute blame for the blast on Syria, effectively. But I think what's important is the recent um, document leak showing the British operations to infiltrate security, army, intelligence services, and even high-level government officials in Lebanon in order to provide um, a counterattack against uh, the influence and stability that Hezbollah offers, um, not only to, to, to Lebanon, but also to Syria. We can't forget that Hezbollah has been instrumental alongside, of course, the Syrian Arab army in stabilizing areas of Syria, particularly on the border with Lebanon. Um, so uh, the, the Foreign Office leak uh, was there been, I think, three drops of documents as a result of that. But the, la the latest one was with respect to Lebanon. And you said the last time you were on this program uh, that the uh, ambassador had uh, quietly uh, disappeared from the country. Uh, he's been replaced now. Yeah, he's been replaced by Chargé d'Affaires. I don't think they've actually appointed an, an actual ambassador yet, but Chris Rampling, who was ambassador at the time that the first leak came out, and if you remember, in the first leak, um, which was put out by somebody called Matthew Dewar, now Matthew in that actually stated, I'm giving you, um, I think it was around a month, for people involved in this operation to leave Lebanon. Now, interestingly, um, the British ambassador <laughs> resigned for personal reasons almost immediately after that, which was Chris Rampling. Um, uh, Alistair Harris, who was also instrumental uh, in, within uh, analysis, research and knowledge, ARC group, uh, was responsible for a lot of the early destabilization and infiltration in Syria, 
was also involved in, in the Lebanese operations. And he also, as far as we know, left rapidly um, and relocated back to the UK. So, um, you know, what we've seen, and I don't know if you have the video there from um, Martin Longdon, who's the guy that's taken over from Chris Rampling, perhaps temporarily. Um, but if we watch this video, we see in the last week, I think it was, the arrival of uh, British military equipment to um, Lebanon, to Beirut port, um, it, ostensibly for use by uh, the Lebanese army, as he calls them, the border forces. Now, anyone with any knowledge of um, the structure in Lebanon will know that the borders, particularly with Syria, are largely policed and secured by Hezbollah with the support. I mean, Hezbollah works with the Lebanese army, but effectively, um, Hezbollah is responsible for the majority of the border security. And that also includes, of course, for the Christian communities that live close to the border with Syria and have come under attack from um, various terrorist groups during the 10-year conflict in Syria. Um, and, of course, what we also need to remember is that in those leaked documents, the target was very clearly Tripoli. Um, Tripoli is uh, very focused on by the groups that are the organizations that are being used as outreach agencies for the British government to secure influence inside Lebanon. Now, Tripoli, as well, come on to... Um, once we finish this video. Um, <clears throat> now, if we look at on the map where Tripoli is, and I've marked quite clearly the area of Al-Qusayr, which is on the, it's sort of between Homs, which is in Syria, to the northwest of Damascus, and um, the border of Lebanon. Now, at the beginning um, of the war against Syria, of course, the U.S. endorsed a project to transport gas from Qatar to Europe. The new pipeline was planned to begin in Qatar to go through Saudi Arabia, Jordan, bypassing what they considered to be Iranian-influenced countries like Iraq, um, to Syria. And the actual um, pipeline would pass directly through Homs and branch into three directions, to Latakia, Tripoli in northern Lebanon, and Turkey, and then obviously on into Europe. Now, we know that part of the reason that the war against Syria began was because Assad favoured um, the, the Iran pipeline, which was backed by Russia. Um, now, Homs also has its own hydrocarbon resources, which again were of interest clearly to the US coalition. And that's why this entire area was one of the first areas to be occupied um, by the proxy militants, funded, of course, by Qatar. Um, and Saudi Arabia, so all those that had a vested interest in, in the progress of this pipeline funded the armed um, militant groups to occupy these areas to secure that pipeline. This was very clear in the beginning of the conflict. Uh, Hezbollah were instrumental in the liberation of Al-Qusayr in 2013 and the securing of um, effectively that pipeline. But, you know, it, it's not rocket science to figure out why the British now are trying to gain influence inside Tripoli to turn that entire area against Hezbollah. Um, and to secure what is effectively um, one of the endpoints of, of, of that main um, pipeline uh, um, mapping out 
and Homs was the central crossing point. So if you look at where Tripoli is, not only does it give them the potential to stretch out and to take influence into, in towards Syria, but potentially um, we have to remember that the armed groups always had the coastal area of Syria, which of course is the government uh, stronghold, if you want to say, and also now Tartus, which is the, the, the main Russian base inside Syria. It gives them an option, I'm just speculating here, of being able to even potentially go further into Syria from this point. So Tripoli is is absolutely instrumental, I believe, to the US-British um, interests against Syria. Okay, thank you. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, my, my thought is that um, uh, I'm sure that your analysis is correct, Vanessa. We've got the extraordinary situation that all this is happening without any meaningful public debate or knowledge here in UK. We're not seeing debate through Westminster. We're not seeing statements by the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, but we've got this, um, this highly developed geopolitical agenda unfolding where military equipment is, is coming out of this country and being sent over to the Middle East. None of this is being discussed with the British public. We, on the other hand, are to be fearful of COVID. We're to be locked up like, uh, I'll say children, but of course that's, that's uh, an insult to the children, really. But we're to be locked up and uh, we're not to pay attention to what's happening here. I, I think your analysis, if, if people are regarding it as analysis of the Middle East and therefore it's not of consequence, what they need to realise is that the same power base that is unleashing this malicious geopolitical agenda in the Middle East is exactly the same power base that's locking us all in our homes in UK and destroying all of our fundamental human rights. Um, people have got to understand it's the same group. And Alex, I think you were beginning to pull together who these people who these people are and what organisations, Chatham House, for example, um, they're using in order to put these policies together. Uh, well, look, we've got, to, we've got to move on. So thank you very much, Vanessa. We'll, we'll uh, speak a little bit later. Uh, now, the, uh, let's go back to COVID. And we already have shown on this programme a number of times the, the way that uh, uh, the COVID narrative has been developed and, and built and spun by the UK government through SAGE, through their behavioural uh, behavioural experts, in inverted commas. Uh, but Alex, we have a, a similar story coming from Germany now. So uh, uh, run us through this. Let's set the scene then first with uh, an article by the Oldenburger Online Zeitung, a regional online paper telling us in a glance what has happened. These slides are text heavy and they're all my translations, so I will not necessarily be reading all the words on every slide. It would be better for people to pause the screen after broadcast and read through these. So what we are reminded of by this uh, Lower Saxony uh, news outlet is that nearly a year ago, late March 2020, a bunch of mainstream media titles in Germany boasted of having got hold of a 17-page internal report, as it was called, that played out multiple scenarios. One of these forecast over 57 million Germans would get COVID and 1.15 million would die of it, and that there would be a German economic meltdown with a 20% drop in gross domestic 
product. And in fact, we did cover that paper at the time of its disclosure on the German Interior Ministry website at the end of April, a month afterwards. Now we have more detail on the hoo-ha that was going on in the background. So another summary of it by the well-respected Frankfurter Rundschau uh, brings it more to the political level. The headline and one of the subheaders I've put on screen is serious accusation levelled at the interior minister. This is at federal German level. There are also 16 state interior ministers. This is the federal interior minister, Horst Seehofer. The accusation is political capture of scientists in secret document. And in the subhead, accusation of capturing scientists for political purposes. Let's zoom in a bit and see what's going on here. Here's the scoop by the Sunday title Welt am Sonntag. Welt generally is somewhere between the Times and the Telegraph, a kind of centre-right, uh, somewhat faux opposition or, or faux anti-socialist uh, publication, shall we say, that uh, throws up its hands in horror at various things, including, and you'll see this in the English-speaking world, there's a bit more squeaking from the centre-right about overreach in Covid lockdown than from the centre-left, but it's all a sham in the end. So Welt am Sonntag uh, went large with this. In an email exchange, they say, Interior Ministry State Secretary, so that's a junior minister in English-speaking terms, Marcus Kerber, of whom more anon, pleads with researchers to come up with a model that could serve as the basis for planning, quote, measures of a preventive and repressive nature. This is not a, a quote from a Hammy War movie. This is actually Herr Kerber speaking. We'll, we'll be taking measures of a preventive and repressive nature. Veltam Sontag goes on, having got hold of this cache of email documents. Within just four days of the email, the scientists, that's those who were addressed by Mr. Sehova's top man, were working in close coordination with the Interior Ministry to produce a paper that was marked secret which nevertheless in the next few days leaked out to various media. The only other big title nationally in Germany that's got hold of this to the same extent is Focus. Here is Online Focus picking up a bit more. There's a nicely masked Mr. Seehofer, who by the way, until last year, was the uh, state premier of Bavaria and the leader of the Bavarian Christian Democrats, who form a party of their own in Germany, CSU. Uh, and it says in focus, the internal email traffic between the Interior Ministry and the researchers reportedly runs to 200 pages, according to the Welt am Sonntag. Lawyers had contested for months the release of this correspondence with the Robert Koch Institute, the equivalent of the US Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, or various other public health advisory bodies that have been tarred with scandal. For the, for the whole of the last year. In fact, the two main names uh, as we go on that people will hear about, the, the, the top of the tree in, in German public health planning, are two of the triumvirates that Rainer Fumich is targeting by name in his lawsuit. Uh, if you could just go back to the focus bit, I will just uh, look at the last, uh, here we are, this is quite important, the last paragraph. It is evident from the emails that the scientists had thrashed out content for a secret paper which in the event did not stay secret. So let's just very quickly remind ourselves of this paper. Those who read German or who wish to use an auto-translator can go to what's on the next slide, the German Interior Ministry. It's rather strange uh, English-speaking title, by the way, is... Um, I'll find that in a moment, but uh, a, a very... Oh, here we are. Federal Ministry of the Interior, Building and Community. And I put in the red box there the date, 28th of April, I believe. Vivio Covid-19 under control of a common. Let's have a look at this document that it's now uh, come into more focus. So to repeat, it's been disclosed for 10 months, uh, but it's only recently that we've uh, that, that there's been a legal uh, imprimatur to publish the emails about it. 
So at the bottom of that screen, I put in the red box, liberty depriving measures. They're talking at the start of this document about how the abs there's an absolute need for central holding and editing of all tests. Uh, well, there's various ways you can translate it, but I've, I've tried central processing to keep it neutral. This is what will facilitate tailored step-by-step -step interventions in economic and social life and will boost acceptance and understanding for liberty depriving measures. Later in that document, we find the worst case scenario and you can put you can see my red box again here the just shy of 1.2 million so 1.15 as carried in that other piece uh, was the you know the shock horror uh, scenario uh, of how many deaths there might be now let's flip forward and see what else we can find out about this down over the border in switzerland they have the advantage of being german speakers so they've been following this and the chief editor of quite a major regional Swiss publication, the Ostschweiz, who's been a big shot in other German-speaking media publications, um, has, has talked about this in an article which he calls Der Fall Deutschland, the, the Germany case or the Germany dossier. Uh, how, and the rest of the title, it would be translated, how fear has been systematically cranked up. And he says these are golden times for op-eds. One can confidently write about the headlines of three days ago without worrying that anyone's beaten you to it. At least if it cuts across the official narrative, other media will have stayed away from it as toxic. He goes on. There's no other way to explain how a leading paper, Welt am Sonntag, can break a veritable scandal and be virtually ignored for it. In a nutshell, what happened is that Welt am Sonntag gained access to internal papers showing that German politicians systematically set scientists the task of spreading fear over COVID. Like a general staff, terms and images were created and deployed to terrify the nation's people to prepare the ground for all the measures that would follow. And there's one more, I think, from his piece. That way, no one would mind shop and restaurant closures or prohibitions on going out because naked fear of the virus would prevail. Let's be honest, it was a runaway success, but it gets worse, actually. Uh, it all got going, and these are two of the three names that are uh, being sued personally now by Rainer Fulmich. It all got going after virologist Christian Drosten and Robert Koch Institute head Lothar Wieler, who, by the way, is a veterinary surgeon, uh, and it is now strongly alleged he forged his doctorate, paid a visit, visit to Federal Interior Ministry Horst Seehofer last March. They told a tale of impending doom if harsh measures were not soon taken. Seehofer was soon convinced he knew Germans would only give up their liberties willingly if they were led by other concerns altogether. He put one of his top officials on the case, Marcus Kerber that is. So began a 200-page email correspondence aimed at enabling the undisturbed planning of, quote, further measures of a preventive and repressive nature, quote, unquote, which needed fear. They literally spoke of the, quote, desired shock effect, end quote, to be achieved in society. And then he's got a slightly longer quotation from the documents, which you might like to read, Mike, for a bit of variation. Uh, well, it says uh, many seriously ill people being taken to hospital by relatives, but turned away and dying in great pain, gasped for breath. A short, sharp lockdown would then be acceptable to citizens. So, yes, that, that's what was being planned. And it was because of the utter shock caused by this that Dr. Reitz, I think he's Dr. Rainer Fulmich, the, uh, the double credentialed lawyer, uh, who's a California attorney and a German advocate, started his case against these two gentlemen. Now, I haven't seen anything about this in the English language media 
uh, let alone in Britain, British media specifically. But it has got over the borders to the Netherlands, where the journalists are often quite good at reading German. So here, if people look at this, I think it's somewhat auto-translated, but it's manageable. It's a verbatim auto-translation, I think, of the Dutch NOS, the Dutch Public Broadcasters report on it. So if people go to Netherlands News Live and look for the headline, German Ministry Hired Scientists to Induce Corona Fear, they will see that. And this bit we won't, we won't read verbatim, but the key thing there is they were working at a half percent death rate and a 1.2 percent death rate in their scenario planning. And one of the scientists in these disclosed emails, which you know had, had to be dragged out of them like extracting blood from a stone, is that what we have to do, he said, guys, is think from the purpose of the model. So the model is king. This is David Scott territory, the, 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 the suborning of science. And for the purposes of the model, he said it would be better to be, to, to be on the bad side than on the good side with our forecasts. And then the Dutch write-up continues that Inaccountably, both of these mortality rates, although that one is over twice the other, were included in the Ministry's final strategy document. For the worst case scenario, they used the percentage suggested by an economic body, our first hint of business involvement here. If the government did not act, 70%, we've been talking about half a percent and 1% deaths, but 70% could become infected, that magic modal verb, and the death toll could run into the millions, as Seehofer warned at several times at the time. So the original for that is the next slide if people want to look it up. Um, oh no, one more, one more in between. The emails, continues the Dutch write-up, were meant to be kept secret. They were released after months of proceedings from a Berlin group of lawyers who sent them to Die Welt. It is clear that Lothar Wieler, the boss of the Robert Koch Institute, was involved in the email exchange, but the, the Institute has declined comment. It was an internal document. So the original of that is the next slide, so people can just um, uh, look at that if they, if they wish. Um, State Secretary Marcus Kerber has already replied, so he's got his right of reply in. The man who actually said, can we have some, some shock and awe, please, some, some repressive measure justification. And his response is the emails should not be viewed as an all-encompassing theoretical treatise. He says, rather, we were faced with the task of preventing a worst-case scenario. Mm -hmm. And then there's been some uh, comeback on that with the German opposition. The opposition is demanding clarification because this is ultimately something that where the buck stops with the interior ministry, uh, minister himself, Horst Seehofer. So the, the chairman, ironically enough, of the party, which is the successor to the East German regime party, Die Linke party, which has been quite anti-lockdown, says it can't be acceptable that politicians can dial up an opinion on demand from scientists. And uh, there's also the Liberal Party, the FDP, on the next slide, which is saying the same thing. Uh, so the Liberal Party wants an, ex an explanation today in the Bundestag. One of their members of Parliament, Konstantin Kuhner, has said science and politics, well, quite normally, they will exchange ideas, but we can't have tailor-made results being presented. The original of that piece, then, is that uh, NOS uh, slide, which I mentioned. But just that's enough uh, um, slides for this, but let's focus now on Dr. Marcus Kerber himself. I've only got one mugshot to avoid doing overkill on him, but that's what the guy looks like. He, he has you know, grown and shaved his beard over the years and worn and, and not worn glasses for photographs. But here he is in, in his official ministry portrait. So to repeat, he's a state secretary in the German model. That's an, a, you know, a junior or assistant uh, minister in, in American or Canadian or British terms. Um, there we are. Oh yes, there, there's, this is something we kept to the end as well. The Ostschweiz, the uh, the piece I referred to from Switzerland uh, a moment ago, 
has a rather telling um, conclusion on this. It says, and this is where we need to think of the SPIB component of the SAGE apparatus in Britain that we've been covering. The researchers supplied the Interior Ministry with suggestions, so they didn't just work to order, they, they positively worked from science to, uh, to assist the government, with suggestions on how to grow, quote, fear and willingness to follow orders among the population. That's the scientists writing in, in those terms to the government. And where that preparedness flagged, it would need, quote, strong state intervention. Brian, this is beginning to sound a bit like Britain, isn't it? But with, shall we say, a bit less tact in the way it's described? Um, yes. Um, what, what was in my mind while you were going through that incredible uh, piece, Alex, was were there direct connections between the British government's behavioural insights team? That was the group of psychologists that were plotting the same malicious uh, scare policy within the government's COVID SAGE unit. And uh, we broke that as a story when, when we got hold of the minutes of the 22nd of March 2020 meeting in which they were openly saying we need to make the British public more fearful. We need to uh, get people frightened enough that they will do as we tell them. We need to turn communities on each other so that the communities effectively police themselves. And they also said we need to be careful doing this because it could escalate and you could read into the text that their fear was people would turn on each other physically instead of just uh, complaining that you weren't wearing a mask. So all of this malicious, malevolent policy we saw being developed very clearly in the United Kingdom. And of course, we followed the trail through the Franco-British Council to the quasi-secret meetings uh, where they were bringing French behavioural science experts into rooms to discuss um, with uh, British experts how this policy was going to be used jointly in UK and France. And the man that we should remember is Oliver Willier, who was the uh, man from Sarkozy's private office, who was the French neuro expert. So the trail for this, I'm going to call it malicious, I'm going to call it malevolent, it's truly evil policy, was coming very much from the heart of the uh, British Westminster government and the behavioural insights team. But we knew that it was effectively... Uh, also buried within the European Union, as we could see the, the progress of those meetings with the French. Um, to me, this is fully culpable stuff. The people who put this policy together to make uh, people in society frightened and terrified to attack their mental health, to say that uh, we should turn community members on each other. These people need to be brought through courts they need to be brought fully to justice. And the sentences for those who are found culpable should be, I think, very severe. I don't know what your response to that would be, but it's largely been the UK column that has broken the trail of the political application of abusive psychology. We have broken this story. Well, I think that's because there's some kind of denotice on it uh, in other respects. Uh, but yes, severe penalties are being asked for by Rainer Fulmich. And of course, he has um, got these two men in the frame 
um, the, the one of them being Professor Christian Drosten, the virologist at La Charité Hospital in Berlin, and the other being uh, this man with no human medical qualification, it now seems, heading the, the Robert Koch Institute. Uh, Drosten, of course, uh, the, 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 who accompanied the Robert Koch Institute head to Horst Seehofer's office to say, Minister, we need some scary figures, uh, had, was active even before the SPIB minutes, because this paper that's been leaked now is regarding March 2020, the SPIB leak that we led with is from February, but it's actually from New Year's Day 2020 that that's, uh, Christian Drosten supposedly spent his New Year's Day in his office single-handedly priming up the data for the PCI test, although he'd not got any samples from Wuhan at that stage. Uh, he sat in his office and did it all digitally as a kind of construct. Now we're running out of time here, so I'll just say that the figure whom um, the Interior Ministry Minister uh, put onto the case, Mr. Horst Seifofer's sort of lieutenant, is very, very interesting. This this gentleman, Marcus Kerber, uh, to give him a one-paragraph description from a, an investment banking uh, website, he's the managing director, or was before this appointment, of the Federation of German Industries. He worked as an investment banker in London, in the equity capital markets divisions of Deutsche Bank and Warburg and Company. Prior to his appointment to the German Treasury, Dr. Kerber was Director General at the German Ministry of the Interior from 2006 to 2009. So he actually came back into the Interior Ministry, having been uh, in business for a while, being the, the head of the German equivalent of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI. So people can easily find a CV of his if they look on the Commerzbank website, uh, because he's been there as well. Uh, they will find a potted biography on the Federal Ministry of the Interior, um, describing his doctoral studies in sociology. There has been a focus on him because he was big at the Interior Ministry around the time of the German response to Brexit. The key Munich newspaper, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, led a piece uh, from that period about uh, who is this man who, I think the, the headline called him Seehofer's Mann für die Heimat, so uh, the, the Seehofer's Mann for the Homeland Front, as it were. Uh, and the article rather interestingly begin, begins, he could have been any number of things. Uh, he could have been a chaplain. He could have been a professor. Uh, he could have been a football trainer. Uh, but as it turned out, he, he was a city gent, and then he came back to the German Interior Ministry. That's the background of the man uh, who you know, ended up asking scientists, would you mind awfully coming up with some repressive measures for us? And most tellingly of all, I think, when the uh, refugee crisis hit Europe in 2016, we find him in the Irish Times proposing a quid pro quo. The headline there is Greek debt, the possible key to refugee solution, says German business chief. So when he was still head of the German equivalent of the CBI, he was saying, let's pay the Greeks to police the borders to keep all these Syrian refugees out. Very odd, because at other times he's been saying that refugees, largely from Syria, are the future for German industry that's losing its manpower. Uh, and rather horrifyingly for David, I think, he is a member of the Friedrich A. von Hayek Society of Germany. Uh, so he claims to be an Austrian economist. Uh, well, your se segment has taken us to a very interesting place, um, Alex. Uh, I'm smiling because you've got two investment bankers. So we've gone through the political situation in UK. We've gone through the horrors of the COVID lockdown. We've seen the effects of uh, United Kingdom geop geopolitics in the Middle East. And now we're into abusive psychology, which ended uh, with the name of a particular banker. Uh, we're going to end with a segment here, which is also bringing us a focus on the banks. There's two sides to this. 
the criminality that uh, is within the international banking system and the fact there are good people who are prepared to stand up. But of course, it took the BBC uh, to attack one of the men who's been standing up and doing a sterling job to take on criminality. This was their headline from earlier today. Thames Valley Police and Crime Commissioner Anthony Stansfield acted outside uh, jurisdiction. Um, a couple of quotes, the police and crime commissioner became involved in, quote, civil issues outside his jurisdiction, a panel has found. So remember that expression. He was just involved in some civil issues. Uh, we've got this one here. A police and crime panel committee found Anthony Stansfield should not have become involved in an insolvency matter after KPMG, one of the UK's largest consultancy firms, filed a complaint. I didn't have time to get in to have a look at KPMG, but my brain says to me that they've been involved in some pretty mucky stuff over the years. Uh, but um, they were the ones that uh, put the complaint forward. Um, we've got this, Thames Valley Police and Crime Panel invited Mr Stansfield to explain his actions after a complaint was made against him by David Standish and Blair Nimmo from KPMG and their legal advisors, DLA Piper UK. Now, remember that K KPMG is one of the massive um, uh, companies that effectively looks after the books for global corporations. And uh, of course, um, they are instrumental in helping, I would gently say, control money flows and how those money flows are reported. Uh, let's carry on here. The panel upheld the complaint after finding the Conservative uh, Police and Crime Commissioner did not have the authority of the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, a national body of PCCs, to become involved in the matter. So quite clearly, according to the BBC, Anthony Stansfeld has been up to no good and his face is all over the paper. What the BBC didn't do is investigate in any way any of the matters that were actually being investigated by Mr Stansfeld himself. And he responded quite robustly. He said that Thames Valley Police and Crime Panel have reached a decision on a subject they know little, if anything, about. And that is absolutely correct. The duties of the PCP is to hold the Police and Crime Commissioner to account, but also to support him. This my panel has failed to do. And then he goes on to say, as the lead for fraud and cybercrime for the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners, it's my duty to be concerned with the issue at hand after, quote, thousands have been defrauded by banks, legal practices and accountants. I cite the case of a former HBOS banker in Reading and five other financiers who were jailed for their part in a, quote, 245 million loan scandal in 2017. So the BBC failed to do any, any investigation into what this man has been warning about. Uh, well, we're delighted to say that uh, somebody wanted to speak out about this report. And uh, we've got a former uh, police detective who has uh, spoken to the UK column this morning. And uh, we've got a four minute clip where he is saying what Anthony Stansfield and his team have really been doing. And I think this report is really astonishing.
I was a detective for many years in the Devon and Cornwall Police. I'm retired now. Um, basically, I was a victim of bank fraud where senior bank managers stepped in with a view to taking my property off me, and I'm still in that battle now. Um, I've discovered forged signatures and fake documents in my, uh, in my paperwork in an effort to uh, beat me down and uh, win. And as a result of that, I, um, I got together with a team of probably the best experts in each field, in banking, in HMRC, retired people, um, stakeholders who advise government, etc. A small but very, very experienced, trusted group of experts in their field. And we have um, basically uncovered masses and masses of wrongdoing by the banks, which has been assisted to be covered up not only by um, the banks, the judiciary, but also regulators all the way up to the top. I've been personally working with Anthony. We've had many meetings in Westminster. Um, I've also been to all parliamentary party group meetings with a number of MPs and given evidence at one of their meetings to the parliamentary group who were investigating bank fraud, serious bank fraud, thing that they were personally investigating and needed my assistance. In his words, defrauded and stolen £100 billion pounds from uh, British businesses, but collectively all the banks, £1.2 trillion, pounds, putting over 60,000 businesses to the wall. So w there's the seriousness of it. Um, in my particular case, I've, uh, our investigations grew. And at one stage, we had 109 victims, um, which I can total to about £1.5 billion pounds worth of, be of fraud, where they've been defrauded out of property and funds to that sort of money. Now, I was involved with the team to put my um, detective hat on, shall we say, and my, with my detective hat on, go through and look at the criminality involved. Um, Anthony Stansfeld um, has been stoic in his support of the victims, quite rightly so. Um, I don't think he's overstepped the mark. I think he has stood up as a, uh, as a strong um, advocate for law and order to be absolutely reinstated. Um, I would say that of the victims that I know, of 109 victims, at least 26 have reported to us um, serious suicidal tendencies. And I believe if it wasn't for Anthony's involvement and, and steering us in the right direction, many of those people may well have sadly gone further than just talk about suicide. Has the BBC shown any interest at all in investigating the, this massive fraud, massive banking fraud that uh, um, the team is investigating? Where has the BBC been in all it this? Would, it, would be, it would be wrong of me to say they've shown no interest because I personally have done two radio interviews. Um, when my, my case of fraud against Lloyd started coming to a head and before I really got into it with Anthony, um, both of those pieces were recorded, sent to London, and they never got aired. I was also in touch with... Um, a BBC TV reporter who had previously done pieces on this sort of thing, and I was told he couldn't air it because the lawyers would step in, and he'd been warned that maybe the next time that they did something like this, they'd be left, uh, facing a lawsuit. His, his words, up to £50 million lawsuit. So he was um, 
basically blocked from telling telling it the way he wanted to tell it on the BBC by the lawyers who vet what is actually going out on the BBC. So what else can you tell us then, David, about what's happening? Well, um, the the IOPC, we have alleged a cover-up by regulators, police, police crime panel members and crime commissioners of very serious banking frauds. They have refused to investigate everything we've put to them all along the way. At least investigate, even if they believe that there's nothing wrong. We have found the one, the few uh, cases they've investigated have been totally whitewashed, and as a result, we are we believe the city has taken over Westminster by big lawyers, auditors, and their connections. And of course, KPMG is one of those auditors. KPMG is a major auditor at global company level. Um, so that man's very brave testimony puts a completely different spin on the BBC report. Alex, we've, we've, we've gone on well over time, but I think our news today is so important in all the sections. Just give us a little bit of a comment of your reaction to the fact this man is saying that essentially law has gone out of the window. If you're a bank, if you're a hedge fund, you can do as you please. And the BBC, uh, not, not every person within the BBC, but of course the BBC top editorial team and their lawyers, complicit, it would seem, in the cover-up of corruption and fraud by the big banks. This is called regulatory capture. And Mr. Stansfeld has long talked about the sins of the regulators here. And it's somewhat parallel to the section we just had on Germany, where we had a case of scientific capture. That's what the German headline actually called it from the Frankfurter Rundschau. Um, how do you capture a branch of public life? Well, you use lawyers to make pseudo legal threats, right? So it, it goes from I'll have you before the law or the law will have a say on this to I'll set my lawyers on you. So ownership and personalization of the law. Um, but people need to be aware that uh, this, this role that Mr. Stansville had uh, is a bit of an Achilles heel for the government uh, because we didn't have elected policing commissioners, unlike many other common law countries, until 2011, the, the conservative liberal Democrat uh, coalition. And it was, uh, it was regarded as a foregone conclusion then that certainly in the home counties, the shires where all the financial institutions are, uh, all of the people who could get themselves onto the safe conservative list for election per county would be in the system, in the bag. But uh, one slipped through for the Thames Valley area, which can, covers Buckinghamshire, Berkshire and Oxfordshire, Mr Stansfeld. He is something rather unprecedented in Britain. He is a directly elected Crown Magistrate. So he's um, a, 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 an agent of the executive branch that cannot be recalled by the Crown because his, his mandate is popular election. And because he's not of the system, he is unsackable. And he said when I shared platforms with him and at other times that um, the, the reason why others don't do follow suit is because their own forces will not investigate expensive fraud deliberately. They, they don't have the funding or the trained officers for that. And of course, juries no longer investigate complex fraud. It's all by design. The city thought it had the whole thing stitched up. But these elections of policing and crime commissioners mean they are unsackable, which is why the last trick that's been pulled out of the box is this laughable idea that a directly elected commissioner for policing and crime needs to get say-so from an umbrella body to investigate. How do you like the idea, Brian, that your MP can't raise your case in Parliament unless he has permission from the National Council of MPs? That's the equivalent argument. 
Uh, yes, although I wouldn't uh, believe that my local MP would take anything to Parliament because I haven't seen him for months and I don't know where he is or uh, what he's doing. I, I presume he's in his, his mance um, under COVID lockdown. We'd better leave it there. We had, I think yes, we're yes. going to say thank you very much to everybody that's joined us today. Uh, we know we've got a, a considerably growing audience. This is a huge uh, bonus. We are delighted. We're also delighted that people have got the confidence to come to the UK column in order to blow the whistle and get their story out. So I'm going to predict that we're going to get many more people starting to come to us in the coming months as this dreadful scenario unfolds in UK. My last comment is, if you are a member, you're signed on as a supporter with UK Column, we'd like to ask you to send an email to Anthony Stansfeld to praise him for his work to say how much you appreciate what he is doing and to give him recognition and his team for the courage in standing up to take on what is massive corruption at the heart of the British government and the state. It's only when we've dealt with this will we be able to lift off the rest of the problems, including the COVID side of life. So you've got an opportunity today to do something very simple, very positive, send this man and his team an email praising them for what they're doing. And let's see if we can get some more whistleblowers coming forward. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.